1: What's going on everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History at Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdel Jabbar. What's up, my friend? Chilling so man,
0: as per usual, round number two for us <laughs> on recording. Round number two.
1: <laughs> yeah, we fucked up our intro before, so we're doing it again. <laughs> I've been better, Danny. It seems like we're on the verge of WW three again. So today it is Thursday, June twenty third. It is about ten seventeen PM Eastern Standard Time. And as we record this episode, there is a blockade in Europe. Well, maybe a more politically correct term would be called a quarantine.
0: It's a quarantine, kind of like what they did in qu- the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. We just did an episode on this not too long ago, and this is part of the reason why we had to start the episode over, because we had to look, remember what the word was. Uh, back then, JFK, when uh, you know the, the Cuban Missile Crisis was starting to heat up, he decided to Place an embargo around Cuba, but they didn't want to call it an embargo because an embargo would be tantamount to war. So they called it a quarantine, but everyone knew it was an embargo or a blockade. So, tell me about this quarantine. <laughs> yes. Well, Lithuania
1: had uh, they they blocked the transit of sanctioned goods to Kaliningrad. Okay. Um, Kaliningrad. If you look at a map of Europe, you'll see this confusing little area between Poland and Lithuania. that's about 200 miles west of mainland Russia. It was, a, it was an old port city captured from Germany by the Soviet Union during World War II. I don't really know too much about Kaliningrad, I'll be honest so I won't speak like I do. However, right now there is a um, what Russia is calling a embargo. And what Lithuania is saying is, is legally abiding by just the recent EU sanctions. So Russia has to deliver everything to this little area, this little enclave in, in uh, the western, 200 miles west, by rail transit. So all the supplies, all the gas, um, pretty much everything that they need comes from you know the mainland, the heartland. So Lithuania has uh, prevented this train transit from happening. And they're saying now that it's not an embargo because they're able to still receive some goods brought by sea, by the Baltic
0: Sea. Right. And just, just for some additional context, in case you're not staring at a map right now, Henry's talking about Kaliningrad, which is 200 miles west of mainland Russia. Now, it's situated between... Kaliningrad and Russia happens to be Lithuania, which is how and why this situation has arised now. Lithuania is a part of the EU. Lithuania is claiming that it is, uh, to Henry's earlier point, just following through with, you know, these EU sanctions. Also, notably, Lithuania is one of those Baltic states that happens to be on the border of Russia that is in NATO, uh, which makes this a particularly spicy uh, situation. And I also just want to point out, Henry, you know, Lithuania's, I guess, legal argument is that it's not an embargo because they can still get, you know, uh, access vis-a-vis the the Baltic Sea. But if I remember correctly, the EU also blocked air travel over EU territory from uh, Russian airlines, right? So they're not allowed to fly in EU airspace Either so they can't fly over Lithuania, they can't train through Lithuania, which leaves them with just one option, which is the Baltics, and that sea also happens to have two other nations that we talked about last in our last episode, which is um, Sweden and Finland, who it seems like all but might join NATO. So if I'm Russia, <laughs> feels a lot to me like a blockade or like an embargo.
1: Yeah, apparently the EU is trying to, to settle this and, and trying to walk this back. But today so we're not actually going to talk over. about it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I think will happen. But um, we're going to talk about the Middle East again. Going back to our roots, when we primarily— Uh, which speak about the Middle East uh, frequently. But nowadays, and I guess this is a good thing in some weird way, that the Middle East is less violent than it used to be. At least it's less violent than 20 years ago um, after the Iraq war. It's less violent when we started podcasting, which is good, but I guess when we say it's less violent, it's less violent in a relative sense to Europe. Yeah. Um, because which there's is a weird thing to say scale modern war going on mm-hmm. however um I, I wanted to follow up on the conversation we were having about turkey mainly you know we were speaking about the financial crisis in turkey about their crazy inflation rate and how they're playing this kind of weird balancing game between the west and russia in terms of what their geopolitical alignment is we we went over their their obsession of uh of sovereignty and not being some type of uh, satellite state despite being part of nato you know they have very real interest that they that they pursue well something interesting happened last week or during this week and it has to do with saudi arabia which will be the the, the uh Topic of discussion for today. So MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince, he visited Turkey for the first time since he whacked Jamal Khashoggi. You know Jamal Khashoggi, the mm-hmm. former Washington Post columnist who uh, got famous following Bin Laden during the Soviet Afghan War. Well, you know, the Saudis a couple of years ago and. 2018 at this point right yeah 2018 and when i say the saudis i mean mbs specifically they had him brutally murdered and dismembered into a bunch of pieces and to this day we never really got any answers on that exactly what happened there like why did they just go batshit crazy with this man and and kill him in such a grotesque fashion.
0: Man, he knew. We something. still don't
1: really. Know. We still don't really know why, and I'm sure we can open up a whole can of conspiracy theories here. But I'll just say, um, assassinating a Washington Post journalist over—I mean, he was a critic of Saudi Arabia. Well, he wasn't a critic of Saudi Arabia. To be more specific, he—he he was a critic of the of the new uh, government, Mohammed bin Salman. You know, that was kind of the. Uh, ire of his criticism and you know he would criticize him over things that you know most Americans wouldn't really think about. So um, he would go after him over the, the blockade in Qatar and uh, the crackdown and, on uh, the Saudi royal family members, MBS's purges of like business leaders who weren't going along with a lot of the financial and economic reforms that he wanted to go he wanted them to cooperate with. He purged those people. And put them in jail. Jamal Khashoggi was a critic of that. And he was a critic of that while in exile, essentially. And despite being just a critic of the government, I mean, every government leader has their critics and has journalists who kind of have a hard-on for them. It's still weirdly extreme to do what they did. Like, was this guy... Spoiling the Saudi PR campaign that MBS was a reformer that much because that was the campaign, right? During that time period, 2016, 2017, when this guy first kind of arrived on the scene, when he was defense minister, when he became the crown prince, because it was like a huge deal that he was going to be this young future king. Most likely, he'll be, become king in his uh, either 30s or at the very oldest, early 40s. Most likely, he's going to be, become king this year. The king is kind of frail and um, allegedly he has dementia and can't really do much. But he, he's going to be the king very soon. You know, it could happen, honestly, like you said, any day. Um, within the forecasting period, he'll, he'll most likely be king the narrative was that this guy was going to kind of bring Saudi Arabia into the 21st century. And you know, the, the women can drive thing was one of the top things that was sold to the West. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess he was kind of a reformer in those regards, but this guy, Jamal Khashoggi was writing in the Washington Post. It's like, Hey, liberals don't trust this guy. He's taking some extreme measures. I still don't think that, that, that he was spoiling the PR campaign that much for MBS that would have solicit that type of extreme reaction of brutally murdering him. So, for whatever reasons, MBS chose to kill him. I mean, it was barbaric, and um, it was especially barbaric to the U.S. political class because, more importantly, Jamal Khashoggi was one of them. Well, the Turks... Are the ones who open up the investigation on his murder. Erdogan was very hard on MBS. We're gonna if someone's gonna assassinate someone, it's gonna be us. You have to remember Khashoggi is a Turkish last name. Khashoggi's grandfather was a doctor in the Ottoman Empire who became Ibn Saud, the original king of Saudi Arabia, or at least the original king of like the modern third kingdom of Saudi Arabia. The guy who kind of took it from being this tribe to uh, a you know a, a wealthy state, um, he was his personal doctor, and he relocated to the Gulf, and then became this mega billionaire. So he had Khashoggi himself had connections to Turkey, both politically and then you know ethnically and you know through his own heritage, and besides the murder at this time period, Saudi Arabia and Turkey were, you know, were, were rivals to, to a degree, you know, they had different interests and they were taking different sides on different conflicts. They backed different factions in Libya. So that war that was taking place, uh, three years ago in Libya between, uh, you know, the, the, I guess the almost non-existent government that was, uh, mainly controlled by like the Muslim Brotherhood groups there. Turkey took that side and then Saudi Arabia and then the Gulf, the other Gulf states, they all backed the uh, secular strong man mustache, Khalifa Haftar. The Turks were also had their own tensions previously with Saudi Arabia because Saudi blockaded Qatar, which is an ally of Turkey so that even took place before the murder despite all this stuff they've been trying to mend their relationships over the past couple of months Erdogan was in Saudi Arabia uh, just a few months ago he was there in April and he transferred the murder case back to Saudi Arabia which is just a sign that don't worry we're over this it's okay Ah, but a long time ago, we'll transfer the murder investigation to you. Meaning that they're transferring the murder investigation to no, nobody. But you have to understand, I, I think everyone knows why that there is this, this mending of relationships. And that's because of Turkey's financial crisis. Turkey is trying to attract Saudi investment funds as you know, essentially a lifeline to pull themselves out of the the, the economic problems that they're having.
0: Right. And we talked at, at length on our last episode about, you know, some of the economic woes that Turkey's having. So this play seems, you know, totally logical, uh, at least from Erdogan's perspective. Let's try and start chatting it up with the folks that's got a lot of money. And maybe we can take this time to talk a little bit about Saudi Arabia's economy, and if you don't mind, Henry, I'd like to take this part. Um, but the the Saudi economy is is without a doubt the largest in the Middle East. Uh, it's been dependent on oil for most of its history, but uh, it's been on this quest to become more like the UAE through kind of this diversification play over the long term called Vision twenty thirty. We've actually talked a lot about this on the show in, in the past, and there's, they're using their sovereign wealth basically to fund crazy infrastructure projects. And they're really, really crazy. So they're putting heavy emphasis on building things for tourism development. And one of these projects is called the Red Sea Project. Uh, We've got a little bit on here. Let Let me just quote this here. It says, the Red Sea Project will comprise 50 resorts on the country's pristine Red Sea coast, including some 8,000 hotel rooms and more than 1,000 residential properties across 22 islands and six inland sites. Complete with its own international airport, the scheme will include luxury marinas, golf courses, entertainment and leisure facilities. Work is on track to welcome the first guest by the end of 2022. There are already around 14,000 workers on site at the Red Sea project a number that will increase between 30,000 and 35,000. Worried about the environmental effect of the excessive worker and plant traffic on the coast, TRSDC specified prefabrication techniques as much as possible. So it's it's an absolutely massive project, and this is just one of many things that is that falls under that Vision 2030 plan.
1: I mean, a lot of the things are, are kind of pipe dreams they're not going to do. They're not going to commit to... Uh, I think it's like decarbonization by 2060 they're not gonna they're not gonna obviously do that they're oil they're ready to produce oil they have enough in their oil reserves to at least produce at the same levels they're at right now i think until like 2070 i think so well so i think the, like in the sky huge... idea
0: for that is that they want to get become carbon neutral which doesn't necessarily preclude The sale or burning of fossil fuels. It just means they have to do other things to, you know, offset their carbon emissions. But given how Saudi Arabia has made their incredible wealth, oil, it's highly unlikely that they would have decarbonization or carbon offsetting to totally you know offset all of their carbon emissions this it just doesn't make any sense they're entirely reliant on oil
1: i guess they have the good sense to understand that um, they do have a lot of problems with diversification in their economy that has been masked by their gdp which is a result of their it, it, which is because of their their oil production they're they're trying to um, kind of mimic the success that UAE has had. It's going to be a harder task for Saudi Arabia. Did you hear about the the city the, the city that they plan on building in north in the northwest called uh, Neom?
0: Is that the like straight line city?
1: If you type in Neom in your Google search bar, and I encourage everyone, it looks like a par- like a future paradise. Like oh, I went on the good timeline where. Woodrow Wilson never became president.
0: There's a whole ass website on it. Looks pretty fancy. I'm going to read a quote that's on their about page from Joseph Bradley, who is Neom technology and digital CEO. And he says, Neom is not about building a smart city. It's about building the first cognitive city where world-class technology is fueled with data and intelligence to interact seamlessly with its population which is the most like they're trying to turn a city into a tech startup basically, which I think is hilarious and just kind of scroll around a little bit on here. It looks like, you know, here's one way that they're trying to, you know, make themselves carbon neutral. They are planning an initiative to plant a hundred million trees in neon. So (laughs) it's just, it's kind of a joke.
1: So, Going back to their economy, um, in the short term, things are looking pretty good for them. You know, they're, they're, um, you know, getting a really big boom with the increase in oil prices. Back to the the MBS visit to Turkey, it's sort of setting up the stage for the upcoming Biden visit to Saudi Arabia.
0: Oh God, I, is he going to put his hand on the globe just like Trump did?
1: I do not anticipate a theatric performance like when the Saudis greeted Donald Trump. I think it'll be pretty cold. I mean, it'll be polite and they'll do the handshakes and they'll smile and, you know, they'll be in front of the camera. And, and But neither of them like each other at all. Biden yeah. hates MBS. MBS hates Biden. Um, they strongly dislike each other. Biden has never liked Mohammed bin Salman. I think the Democrats in general, they look at him as kind of a Trump person which they're kind of right about. Because I remember speaking with Gregory Gauss, who's the Dean of International Relations at Texas A&M. Mm-hmm. And he's a Saudi expert. He's a Saudi watcher. He's probably one of the top Saudi experts in the country. He said that... Um, I asked him, like, how did MBS, MBS rise to power? And he said... You know what? I think a lot of it had to do with Jared Kushner and Donald Trump. I think that they identified them and they played their hands in the Saudi royal family, and I think that had to do a lot with him getting favor as the chosen successor. It it's it's hard to believe because historically um, the Saudi royal family has been pretty close handed in their succession process and you know how they kind of form their government to the U.S. But you know, according to him, which which I you know take as an authority, uh, the Trump team was influential in him rising, you know, as the crown prince, and the political class in general really favored um, MBS's uncle Ben Nayef, who had been the previous crown prince. They, I think, everyone liked him. They saw him as kind of like a reliable status quo type partner. He was kind of the chosen successor and. They did not want this guy who was unpredictable, had allegiance to a political enemy in Trump, to, um, to become the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. Now, Biden vowed to turn Saudi Arabia into a pariah state over the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. He released the intelligence report linking MBS to the murder. So how about that? So he released the intelligence report that you know, said that Mohammed bin Salman was guilty of this murder, which he had been denying, uh, still denies.
0: It's going to be a really awkward meeting <laughs> after that, I think.
1: Yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting to see Biden going to Saudi Arabia right after refusing to attend a summit with, uh, with leaders of Cuba uh, Venezuela and Nicaragua because they're not he's not mean with them because he's saying that they're you know dictatorships and ran by strongmans and autocracies or whatever you want to call them they're not liberal democracies I mean you're meeting with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia I mean, what else what other way would you describe that government
0: not to mention like his, his personal gripe or his personal detesting of Mohammed bin Salman himself like okay you know, the leaders of Cuba, Venezuela and Nicaragua, especially in you know, Venezuela, aren't necessarily friendly with the U.S. But we're, I don't remember Biden calling out President of Venezuela the way that he's, you know, had a had a bit of an itch to call out MBS, you know. So it's kind of a weird thing, but I mean, it there's an obvious reason why he's going to Saudi Arabia. It's super clear, and it's because of the war in Ukraine.
1: Yeah, the reason for the about-face is, is y- yes, the war in Ukraine. You could say that Biden has found it necessary to court other energy producers to replace oil from Moscow, and ultimately, he, he wants to stabilize world markets. And OPEC has, um, you know, they've recently pledged to increase their production into July and August, and... I think the expectation is that these increases are going to go throughout the fall, even though they haven't pledged uh, to increase past August. But I think that's what the expectation is: is that they're con- they're going to continue to ramp up production. Now, um, Blinken and the Biden foreign policy team and the State Department—they when they're confronted about this—it's this not the first administration to use this reasoning. It's kind of like the common talking point in Washington in general among um, just politicians and all sort of think tank community. They do it because of security, not necessarily oil. And, you know, they'll say, like, we don't actually import that much oil from Saudi Arabia. So why, why do you think this relationship is based solely on oil? This relationship is about security. And when they say security, they bring up two things. They bring up the partnership with Iran or the partnership with Saudi Arabia to be a bulwark against Iran. And then they talk about uh Saudi Arabia as a partner against terrorism, which it's is such bullshit. Which is which is complete bullshit because the Saudis are the number one sponsor of terror groups in the world. They've always have been. Uh the US has turned a blind eye to Saudi Arabia's support for jihadi terrorism and and also just the overall spread of wahhabism over the past four decades. Well, you could say, well, sometimes you have to sacrifice your values to your national interest. What Biden is doing is not really realism. It seems like he's just ultimately setting himself up to be to look like an idiot, to be completely honest. If you were in the pursuit of lower lower oil prices, the easiest thing to do would be is to make a plan with Iran to get back into the to the Iran deal. And if you're going to go all in on Russia, which seems to be the policy right now is to to prolong the war and and, um, you know, kind of wait it out. And hopefully Russia runs out of steam and they have economic problems. Regardless, they're all in doesn't seem like there's going to be any type of normalization between the West and Russia anytime soon. So Going back into the Iran deal would be the natural thing to happen if you wanted to ultimately help Europe reduce its dependency on Russian gas and oil. Iran has over 50 billion barrels of oil and storage that could go into the, to the global market. All Biden would have to do is get back into the deal that his former administration made. Like that's the deal that his boss made, so it's kind of silly when you think about it. I mean there there are there are fixes even if you want to maintain this this um, this this real hawkish policy on Russia, which the administration is committed to to doing.
0: I mean it's it's wild because you know there's there's no indication that that just dumping more oil into production is going to make an immediate dent in, in say like gas prices, but it is kind of a virtue signal. It's also super weird because it's not going to go over very well with the right uh, in general, because the right still has this boogeyman complex with Iran. Um, And also, you know, a lot of the right just feels like we should just be drilling and, you know, increasing oil production domestically. So I'm not really sure how, like, does this satisfy the the liberals? I mean, liberals don't even want oil, (laughs) you know? Uh, So, and and they certainly don't like, uh, uh, as you pointed out, they don't like the Saudis either, or specifically MBH. So I I don't know if this oil play even makes a whole lot of sense. It sounds like they're just grasping straws for the midterm. See what, what wins could they get? It just doesn't well, doesn't make a ton of sense to me.
1: I think I think when gas prices are are uh, over six dollars a gallon, everyone is hoping to find a way to reduce gas prices. No matter what your views are on climate change and and decarbonization and renewables mm-hmm. are, if you're immediately doubling your commuting price, in some cases tripling your your commute to work. I don't care how liberal you are. You're going to be like, so why man, not- we got to get some more oil in that market.
0: <laughs> so then, in that case, why not, you know, closer to home? Why not like look at Venezuela? Why not drill somewhere on our own turf? Like, uh, and I'm not advocating for this, by the way. I think it's a terrible idea, and we should totally like push towards more sustainable, like, green energy. But that's that's a different story. What, what I'm saying is, there's probably easier ways to get oil than to you know, basically about face on Mohammed bin Salman, (laughs) you know, because that's what he's doing out there. You know, the State Department tries to play like that. That's not going to be the case. But, you know, we know everyone knows.
1: Well, here's the thing. Politically in the U.S., I don't think people really give a shit what we do to get our oil as long as, you know, there's not a price shock as long as oil. If oil prices are down, or if um, oil per barrels down, and gas prices at the pump are, are lower, people are just going to be like, okay, great, and be happy. If if gas prices are high, then that's just going to be a point of contention in politics. I don't think that the average American really thinks or cares about how we make these deals or what the geopolitical consequences are around them so if he went and pissed off the right and they had some talking points about oh he's capitulating to iran all blah 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 they're gonna build nuclear weapons in six months blah 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 i think that would mostly just fall on deaf ears it was it was just like the same thing with democrats um, criticizing um, Trump for making peace with—or with, uh, trying to make peace with North Korea. Oh, blah, 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 blah. How could you sell out to South Korea? How could you be friends with a dictator? No matter what you do, that the rival political faction is going to be against it and criticize it and say that you're a traitor and all this it, just, it so is I mean, what it is. That's, that's well, the name of politics. What you're saying is like
0: the, the ends, it, politically, the ends justify the means. It doesn't matter in the case of at least oil. It doesn't matter where we get the oil. As long as the oil prices go down, no one's really going to give a shit. And that's kind of a pessimistic way to look at, but it's also probably pretty realistic. But again, you know, I, I mentioned this before. It's not going to make a huge dent.
2: It, and you have to think. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.
1: And Biden's coalition of voters is more than just liberal housewives. It's a whole, it's a whole collection of like working class minorities and and you know different groups who are really impacted by higher gas prices. And and gas prices don't just impact your commute to work. They impact everything. They can they, they right. increase the cost of transit and the cost of goods at your grocery store. They do increase to They do. Um, you know they are a factor behind inflation i mean inflation is the you know the printing of money or the overprinting of money but they're definitely a contributing factor to uh, the increase in prices that we're all can't help but see you know at starbucks i went to starbucks and i got an iced coffee with almond milk grande which first of all it's bullshit how they fucking name their coffees.
0: Yeah, right? Grande, isn't Starbucks. that the small one? <laughs> or the medium one? I don't even remember. It's that's not the, the big medium one. Because that's the venti, that's, right?
1: That's the medium one. Grande okay. is the medium. The large is venti. The small. You know what they call the small size? Tall. 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 That's like just an Orwellian world to me right there. You call the small size tall.
0: Why not like well, pequeño or some shit like that? If we're gonna go with like the, the Spanish or the Latin roots,
1: it was six twenty five for a grande iced coffee at Starbucks. Wow, Henry,
0: f- you're such a millennial, <laughs> <laughs> griping over Starbucks.
1: <laughs> I I mean, I'm not just griping about Starbucks, but that's a fifty percent increase in the cost of that coffee. I got that coffee a year ago for three twenty five or mm-hmm. three fifty or whatever mm-hmm. with tax. Now it's 6 something. I don't know. That's crazy to me. That's that's nuts to me that the price <laughs> went up that high for something I consume frequently. I drink coffee a lot. I drink that's how this podcast is made. I chug coffee basically throughout the entire day. That's how I have the energy to do this. That's a lot of money for a single iced coffee that cost a couple of cents to 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 make.
0: All right, so so do you want me to get you one of those stickers that said I did that with Biden's face on it, and we can put it on all your coffees from now on. <laughs> What's that sticker from? Oh, you do, you've never seen that? Like, uh, Google it real quick. There's a, it's like a kind of annoying meme. It's like a sticker that people are putting on the gas pumps with like Biden, and said I did that.
1: Let's just be real. The inflation is has been caused by the money printing during COVID. That's why there's so much inflation going on right now. It's not all because of Joe Biden. I mean, they're trying, and they're honestly probably going to do this successfully just because of the timing of the presidency. Of course. He kind of did get stuck in Joe Biden for all of his horrible faults. um, He he did kind of get stuck holding the bag. And it's not like he was doing anything to make it better. I'm not saying that. He did get stuck with like the, you know, the recession bag. Here you go, like hot potato, hot potato. Oh, you got mm-hmm. the recession, ha ha. You got the inflationary recession. Sorry, thats it is what is what it is. That's just policy. That's just monetary policy. Someone's got to get stuck with this bag every every decade, every fifteen years, every decade, and that's what it is. Um, so yeah, of course Republicans are going to use that to their advantage. They wouldn't be doing their job if they weren't. Back to um, we got completely off topic on this one. I think Biden is going to Saudi Arabia, or one at least one of the things on his mind right now is not necessarily about the increase in oil production. I think that maybe some of his political strategists are saying, hey, we need, a, we need some type of win to take back home with us. Why don't we go there and, um, you know, we're working on this roadmap for normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia, Why not we try to, like, iron out a plan and say we got Saudi Arabia and Israel to normalize each other and become friends and neighbors? Because the average American thinks that all Arabs are the same. That's such a joke. Can we go back to the
0: oil thing? (laughs) I'm
1: I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. I hear
0: hear you, dude. I'm, I'm just saying, like we're going to Biden's going to go out there and try to make peace in the Middle East that you might as well shoot for the more reasonable one of like, let's get some more oil. Cause that's a silly, silly objective.
1: Well, Trump did the same thing. Trump did the same thing last uh, a couple of years ago with, with the Abraham Accords. Basically they're like, I created peace in the Middle East. I got
0: such a, such a meme. It's not real.
1: he got, Middle Eastern countries that already have good relationships with Israel to recognize Israel formally. And they're like, I, I stopped decades of war in the Middle East by doing this. No, you, they, these countries already had good relationships. And that's the same thing with Saudi Arabia and Israel. Saudi Arabia and Israel have been cooperating on, on, sec, on security issues for the past three decades. Um, in fact, it goes it, pretty much since both of their existences. They've been on the same side almost, almost every single um, geopolitical event or geopolitical uh, geopolitical uh, interest. They've always been on the same side. They've always cooperated with each other. They've always been tacit a- allies. They don't recognize each other. There is a political risk for governments to recognize Israel because, by and large, most, most Arab populations do not like Israel. Um so it's hard to it, there's a risk in doing that but the government's cooperate so working out a plan and the saudis have already said like they're committed to doing it the israelis are saying why yeah why not like why don't we just officially normalize our relationships and then you can just go back and say oh this uh, joe biden's experience he got the Arabs and the Jews to finally like each other. What a so whiz. Ridiculous. So fucking and ridiculous. I, I do think there's an element of that. Like, why not try to just sell a piece? Why don't we just try to kind of propagandize our way out of the, 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 the crises that we're in right now and try to just make up a Middle Eastern peace deal out of nowhere? Um, it's
0: not going to work. I mean, like, it's obviously... To the reasons that you just pointed out, they're already working together. So this would just be fucking, you know, making it going from friends with benefits to just straight up in a relationship. I get that. I understand. What I'm trying to say is that I don't see this as being like fruitful at home. (laughs) You know, I don't see all the Americans being like, yeah, great. Joe Biden's awesome. He made peace in the Middle East. No, they're going to be like, my fucking gas is still $6 a gallon. I don't give a shit.
1: Well, what did the famous James Carvel say? He's still alive, I so I shouldn't can... speak about him as he's dead. James Carvel is the famous He's like a famous uh, liberal Democrat pundit. Um, okay, I'm but he's not like guy, a new so. <laughs> newer school one. He's more of a guy who rose up in the nineteen nineties during the Clinton age. So, like his rivals and the people he went after were like Newt Gingrich and uh, you know those Republicans from the nineties and two thousands. Mm-hmm. Um, what did he say? But he he said it's the economy stupid.
0: Ah, he said that the, the economy
1: ah. stupid. Mm. That's his famous words. It's the economy stupid, and that's really, I think, what it comes down to. And when you see political shocks like we did see in 2016, it's the economy. It's that there's there's large. Uh, inequities and wealth and um people are upset about that so i don't think most people that, give a crap about it. unless unless you're in a position like george w bush was after the iraq war where you get a blank check to do whatever foreign war that you want because we just went through a horrible tragic event in 9 11 if yeah people were gonna like be like yeah i want to but as it goes on, people are gonna be like, What the fuck are we doing? Like people are finally saying that the war is causing problems here and we should keep on doing that. I don't know about doing that anymore. I think I think we should stop. And I think that's gonna be the eventual reaction of most um of most Americans.
0: If if Biden really wants a win, he gets Saudi Arabia to stop bombing the shit out of Yemen that's that's a win because well, this this whole weird like let's normalize relationship between you know Israel and and Saudi Arabia not only is it just superficial on on the face of it but also I, I frankly don't think people would care and since it's not really anything of merit it's kind I mean peace is always a good thing but it's just kind of a waste of time he should, if he's going to do anything on peace in the Middle East, he should focus on like, stopping the war in Yemen. I think he should give him a straight up ultimatum and be like, yo, we're not sending you any more guns, no more bombs. You're going to stop doing what you're doing. Straight up. So maybe, well, maybe we just turn to Yemen for a bit.
1: Yeah. So, first and foremost, just one thing, just to, to one more thing the, the Middle East, the United States is de escalating in the Middle East. I mean, that's just been a a trend since the Trump years. Um, And to include the greater Middle East, so Central Asia, um, I think most people by now kind of throw Afghanistan into the MENA countries, even though, you know, it's not. But it it effectively kind of is, same theater of war, essentially, where there is this big de-escalation from these ridiculous nation-building type projects in Afghanistan. And um, you know, military thinkers are, are more or less thinking about, you know Asia and Russia and, and larger geopolitical foes rather than, you know these these smaller countries in North Africa in, in the Middle East. Now, this is forcing, and, and this could be, I think, a larger thought in the foreign policy establishment among realists that there's going to be a natural with the de-escalation of the middle east or u.s of u.s presence in the middle east they are going to like the israelis and the arabs are going to have to cooperate and work with each other because all of them are going to want to because they're all small states when you think about it israel israel has 10 million people Um, the other gulf states have like I think Saudi Arabia is probably the biggest, with around 30 million people or so. These are all countries that are significantly smaller than the two historic powers in the region. The two historic powers in the region are the Turks and the Persians. They're the ones who used to be bitter rivals. They're the ones who used to be the you know historical um, rulers uh, for a very long time, and. I think that I mean both those countries have uh, populations of. I think Turkey probably has a population of around 80 million people, and then the uh, Iran has to have close to 100 million people. But they, you know, they're they're large countries, and they're and they're and they're serious geopolitical foes, um, especially for the Israelis and the Saudis. Now, um, I think that the progression is that there's going to be more cooperation between the Israelis and the other uh especially gulf arab states and forming security alliances against um mainly iran but i mean it could possibly be really anyone i think part of this normalization plan that the white house is talking about is, is going to include um i think a missile deal between egypt saudi arabia and and uh israel where they're gonna they're working on like a missile defense program so I think maybe the State Department—that might be one of the big things that Biden is going to talk about. Um, maybe just overseeing the natural, the natural kind of events that are going to take with the transition of the U.S. Um, out of the Middle East. So that's that. That could be it, rather than just the political win. Uh, mm-hmm. My inner cynic is coming, is saying that. Which maybe I'll be. Maybe my inner cynic will be proven right that this could be, like, a way to present a, uh, a a win to to the base.
0: I mean, so what you're saying is that because the U.S. is pulling out of the Middle East broadly, that because we're not going to be in there fucking around anymore, all the actors and players in, in that region has to now, you know, band together to thwart Iran or, I don't know, potentially Turkey or, or other... Uh, uh, larger regional actors so you're, you're saying that 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 is a natural progression and somehow Biden wants to go over to Saudi Arabia to facilitate that and that becomes the political win
1: I, I don't think that's gonna how it will be pitched to the public but that's definitely I think that will be one of the highlights of the conversation It's like hey like how's everyone getting along over here um because the Israelis and the Arabs and the Arab Gulf states are, are, you know, again, they've been cooperating for very for a very long time. But I think that their uh, security architecture will become more recognized as like a formal entity, rather than it be like you know, the Mossad and the the uh, you know the Saudi secret police or or having um, you know tacit ties. It will be more. So it will be more form formal. Middle East NATO over and, there, like <laughs> no, I don't think they're gonna make a Middle East NATO, but they're gonna have kind of like joint deals. They're, they'll have probably like you know different um, projects. Maybe they'll go as far as like uh, training exercises. Who knows? But I, I think you're gonna see more cooperation between between those states, and and I think that's just the the next step of of the U.S. leaving. But like, so why is, it a, that why could is be, it a good
0: idea to to give Saudi Arabia more access to dangerous weapons like missile programs as an example. Why is that a good idea we know what they're going to use it for? Which again, Yemen.
1: <laughs> well, let's go let's go let's turn to Yemen because um things have actually been better in Yemen. I, I mean I'm saying better as in better better as in compared better. to a year ago at this time. So, um, Hadi, in, first and foremost, there's been a ceasefire that has been renewed. So, there was a ceasefire that started in April. It was renewed at the beginning of June. I think most people following the war, or at least the people that I've read, and a lot of experts on on uh, Yemen and Saudi Arabia that I've read, were surprised that this was renewed. They are like, oh, wow, this is Unexpected, but I'll take it type of attitude. Hmm. So there was a ceasefire. So the 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 fake president of Yemen, Hadi. So the guy who ran for president um, in 2014 with one man on the ballot, where you can you know find just one guy on the ballot, Hadi. Somehow and, um, got
0: less than 100% of the vote. <laughs>
1: yeah, so when Saleh got hurt, when Saleh got injured in that assassination attempt, they, Hillary Clinton basically just kind of uh, installed him as president of Yemen, and this guy was hated. This guy was exiled, and he was called the government of Yemen, but he was just some guy in a hotel room in Riyadh, and he was the government of Yemen. So he officially stepped down as that's president of yemen and he handed over his rule to like a collection of like tribal groups it's like the tribal groups there have like a leadership council so he's gone from the picture so i guess there's at least not the facade that there's a yemen government like fight it's at least that obstacle is is gone and on the other side um you know in addition to the ceasefire politically in in congress this is an issue that i guess there is will from the house to fight this just because it's the the war so i guess if if enough people get in get in the face of bernie sanders and i think bernie sanders is is, has been has been actually really good on this issue Mm -hmm. but if a bunch if enough people get into the face of of uh of their congressmen or their elected officials and they're like hey this is if you show them like starving cuz it's very easy to just type Yemen and starving children and you'll see these horrific pictures that right. if you are presented these pictures and you're not like oh my god there we can we there's policy changes we can make to prevent this from happening you have to be a sick sociopath so ending the war in Yemen is not really controversial in congress good to the point to the point where i think that in in order to want to back the war or continue the war you have to have like a very direct political or business interest not to oppose it or you have to be just totally drunk on the on the kool-aid that iran is like secretly running the war like oh it's all Iran and everything's an Iranian proxy and we have to fight them there or Iran is going to, have to take over all of the Middle East, um, I think that if you drink that Kool Aid like a Nikki Haley type person right <laughs> was who's this who's who's crazy, um, but if you're a somewhat reasonable liberal hawk, I mean even the neoconservatives. I bet you can get them in a room and say, okay, we need to get this to stop. I bet you can get, like, Bill Crystal to say, all right, it's time it's time to end this. Enough it's is time enough. time to end our su- – eno- enough is enough. Mm-hmm. Like, the most hawkish liberal crazies um, I think you could get to, to to support this. It's more of just, like, an anti-Iran thing at this point, the ones who, who want to continue it. Like, oh, we can't let Iran get our foothold in the Gulf what fire there a direct threat to israel trump trump was someone who had that crazy uh, that crazy mentality where you know everything was a threat to israel and um he also again going back to to earlier mbs and trump had connections
0: business connections personal
1: connections all political could just political connections i think The Trump administration valued the leadership in Saudi Arabia as as um, as loyal allies as you can have on the international stage. And they wanted to keep them happy. And also there was the arms deals that he kept on bragging about Mm -hmm. that. We're going to sell billions of
0: dollars in weapons. Mm -hmm. I think
1: that he was I think he was genuinely confused about them. Um, I don't I don't really think he knew under understood how the arms deals worked, but he vetoed it four times in total four uh, among times. those was the was the uh sj res uh resolution seven which was early in 2019 which was the first time it was ever used uh the Warp the uh, the wars powers act mm-hmm. uh that was the first time that it was ever used but i mean hopefully that this this ceasefire continues to hold up and you know, this resolution is passed that to, to end up uh, any support and uh, to kind of build off the momentum of the continued ceasefire because it seems, that it also seems that the Saudis do want out of it.
0: Why? Because they're not immediately it, winning?
1: <laughs> it's just, the war's never going to end. It, it, the war will never end. Unless there is some type of um, negotiated solution where you you satisfy the different tribal elements in the war. It's just, it's just not going to end. There's enough weapons, there's enough guns, there's enough pissed off people with dead family members who are willing to grab rifles and fight and the war will not end. So Saudi Arabia can do the same thing that Egypt did in the 1950s or 1960s, excuse me, and just blow their wad on Yemen because that's ultimately what destroyed Egypt in the 1960s they blew their wad all on Yemen and they basically just made it really easy for Israel to just smoke them so they want to do all these crazy projects if they had this prolonged war forever because that's how long it will be the war will just go on forever then good luck like you want to ha- always have the risk and now the Houthis get have like ballistic missiles and shit like that why are you right. going to just keep on like every year it seems like their ability to strike saudi infrastructure increases just it's not that big of an interest for them really like just a couple of better ports at, to have access to like that's what we're fighting over it's 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 crazy. I think it's just a lack of the leadership. I think which prince one of the one of their princes who dealt with like the patronage network in Saudi Arabia died. I think that was one of the big reasons why um, the Saudis lost control over their Yemen policy. I don't know. Maybe it's worth just going over the history of this real quick.
0: Sure. Yeah. Let's talk about it.
1: So Yemen is the poorest country in the Middle East, and to make a long story short, Yemen has really been in a perpetual war for decades. The most recent war is the war that started in 2014, and uh, the war in 2014 has created the the, the world's largest humanitarian crisis. So hundreds of thousands of people have died. Uh, The most recent estimate is about 400,000 people have died. Uh, most of these uh these these casualties or most of these uh deaths are due to things like starvation and uh you know death to treatable diseases like uh um, cholera it's yeah cholera it's a real tragedy it's really awful and yemen is it's a state in name only it's not really much of a state at all. It's hard to even, It's hard to call it a nation state. It's dominated by indigenous tribes who control different parts of the country. The southern tribes are primarily Sunni, and the northern tribes are mostly Z- Zaidi Shiite. Zaidi Shiite, they're very different from Twelver Shiites in Iran. They have their own thing. They're actually closer to Sunnis in a lot of ways, but. They have their own. It's it's like a it's kind of a very uh, fringeish sect that's really only native to that part of the Arab world. So these political factions they clash, and this city called Sana, which is the largest city in Yemen, is also the center of the country, and. You know, we're dealing—it's it's a complicated affair because we're dealing with the many different tribes of Yemen, so tribal politics. To, to give you some historical context, in the 1800s, northern Yemen— so this used to be different part. Yemen was divided into to different regions. Northern Yemen was part of the Ottoman Empire, and southern Yemen was part of the British Empire. The British used Aden— as a refueling point for ships traveling through the Suez Canal. So Aden's on the Red Sea, so it's a natural uh, port when traveling through the Suez Canal uh, in Egypt. After World War One, when the Turks left the Arabian Peninsula, northern Yemen gained its independence, and then it also became a monarchy. Uh, southern Yemen, it remained occupied by the British until the late 1960s. And after World War II, when the British and the French started to, you know, leave these areas, when they started to ditch their empires, essentially, what rose in, in place of empire in the Middle East was a ideology called Pan-Arabism. And, um, you know, Pan-Arabism is is kind of that uh, Arab nationalism. It, it was um, greatly instigated by or, or or largely spread or influenced by a Egyptian colonel named uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, and he overthrew an unpopular b- puppet king in Egypt. And Nasser, he drafts up a socialist constitution. He starts to nationalize the economy. Um, and after that, pan-Arabism starts to spread throughout the Middle East. Now, the British don't like this. They especially get upset when with uh, Nasser, or the Egypt they nationalized the Suez Canal in order to, uh, you know, fund their different infrastructure projects. The main one being the Aswan Dam in Egypt, and um, now one of these countries that, um, and the reason why I bring this up is that that Pan Arabism spreads to northern Yemen. In uh, 1962, there was a there was a Nasserist military coup in North Yemen, which which created a, a very large civil war that that lasted about a decade and then the Nasserists were backed by Egypt they they they, they, they and they in, intervened on behalf of the door of the government in the north it became a disaster for them they were there for for about for eight years in total they lost uh, tens of thousands of soldiers fo- fighting a guerrilla insurgency and the uh, South was backed by the the a combination of Saudi Arabia, Israel, and the United States and the British. So it, it's I think most people are so binary where they think that Arab equals one side, Israelis on the other side. Constant warfare. In fact, the Israelis and the in and the Arabs or the Israelis and the Saudis are virtually on the side of almost every major conflict that you can you can really think of
0: and this just happened to be one of them
1: and this just happened to be one of them so this is going back to the 1960s Israel's main enemy has always been Arab nationalist rather than the uh, you know religious the religious countries or the wahhabist countries or the or the monarchies there. It's always been the spread of Arab nationalism.
2: We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Now, um, when the British leave southern Yemen in 1967... The, the southern Yemen reoriented it, it, it becomes basically a sat not a satellite state, but it becomes it it, it becomes allies with the Soviet Union. So you have these two states in Yemen, the the, the, y, the YAR, the Yemen Arab Republic at the north, and then the the PDRY, the People's Republic Yemen in the south. And then these two Yemens have border clashes for, for years upon years. Um, sometimes they have periods of cordial relationships, and they eventually agreed to merge in 1990 with the President of North Yemen, um, Ali Abdaslah becoming president of this new state and it's it's important to note that North Yemen had all the major population centers and, and South Yemen is is all desert, except for the city of Aden, as in South Yemen, which is right. more or less in the central but the key person you need to know who kind of runs things in Yemen for for many years is is uh, is Saleh. Saleh was a was a military commander who who came to power in 1978 after the previous president was assassinated and he he's a guy who came from a lower level tribe. He was um you know he was a commander of a of a he was commander of like a local military district um But he understands how to create these complex political patronage systems, which is key to to kind of holding the power in Yemen is is having access to the political patron the tribal patronage system. And that really becomes the core framework of the of the government or what becomes the eventual state of of Yemen. So um you know he understood how to extend his patronage network to satisfy those local tribal leaders uh to make them um you know cooperate with with the state power because i guess there's a pretty red line and it's pretty easy to kind of cross those red lines to piss off these tribal leaders and to get yourself back into you know some type of war so he creates; he essentially creates a modern state through his, you know, connections. Then the Houthis, they come to be. So the Houthis, they originate in in um, in, in uh, northern Yemen. They consider themselves the descendants of Muhammad. They, um, you know, they're they're Zaydi Shia, and They, um, you know, they're, they're, I don't want to get into the different religious differences because it's, I'm going to make this too long, but they're significantly different than the Shia in in Iran or the Shia in, in Iraq, like the most, most of the Shia. They have significant theological differences with them. Regardless, they are, um, they've kind of been forced to ally with Iran. And I guess the best way to put it is that the Zaydi or the the Houthis who are predominantly Zaydi, they've been kind of pushed. They're fighting this war with, with Saudi. And Iran basically said, hey, you're fighting Saudi. We'll help you. And then that was it. Like, I think that was kind of how that relationship was formed. It was... That had nothing to do with, like, the extension of, of uh like, I don't think there was any religious element whatsoever between the Iranians and the Shia. Not like there was in Iraq. In Iraq, there's definitely a huge religious element to that where, you know, they share, you know, similar ayatollahs and stuff like that. But there there is not that camaraderie between Zaydi, Shia. And um, the twelve or Shia there. Maybe maybe it's developed, but from what I've read, there th- that just never really existed. It was purely a geopolitical relationship. But I think it's important to understand when America gets into the picture. In two thousand nine, when, Ob- when Obama became president, he told the CIA to drone war, to to drone strike al-qaeda in somalia pakistan and yemen al-qaeda's yemeni franchise had been blamed for the underpants bomber
0: oh really I yeah i forgot about that
1: so and then also like fedex bombing attempts so in response in 2009 obama's like all right let's release the drones so go after al-qaeda in the arabian peninsula So Saleh takes the guns and the money, and he starts to go after these Houthi rebels. What happens in response is the Houthis only end up getting bigger. They end up—he ends up getting blowback from attacking the Houthis. And, um, you know, when when the Arab Spring starts to sweep across the Middle East, you know, Yemen didn't— you know, Yemen. Yemen was swept in that as well. There was an assassination attempt on Salah. He ends up getting hurt. He survives his bat. His, um, I mean, he gets his face blown off. Essentially, right? I was just like gonna say he, it's not off. just that
0: he he got hurt. <laughs> Dude was missing a
1: face. Yeah, his his face was melted off in a car bombing, and he is forced to leave the country on medical to receive medical attention. And while he's there, Hillary Clinton just decides that he resigned and then assigned runs an election that she claims is like a shining example of a democracy with one person on the ballot. And uh, this is Hadi, the guy who I had mentioned who just stepped down. And the problem is that Hadi is very unpopular. He's a doofus. Hadi's a dumb. It's a big stupid idiot. He's not popular, and he just cannot handle creating the same. What's impressive about Salah is that he's kind of holding on to this extremely uh, complicated tribal network, and he's, for the most part, not. Allowing a full-scale war to break out. I mean, there are wars, but in that time period, but he's somehow able to kind of manage just this um, network, and the Saudis were able to cooperate and deal with this network as well, and that's why you know they didn't weren't drawn into the conflict. But the M Night Shyamalan twist is that when Hadi gets when um, when Salah wakes up from his injuries, he. To ends up, he's a Zaidi Shia. So he's Zaidi all along. So he's like, okay, I'm not gonna fight the Houthis anymore. I'm gonna join the Houthis. So he marches his army and he joins the Houthis, and then they combine their army to conquer the, the to uh, march down to the capital Sana and and uh, conquer it. And that's how the war breaks out and and um, the Saudis were on the side of the government, and um, the government, a, quote unquote, Hillary the government, meaning the guy, the government meeting the guy in a hotel room in Riyadh, and the war has been managed by um, U.S. war planners for many years to the point where there are F-35s bombing people from high altitude. And, you know, I don't know if this is true or not. This is completely alleged. But I kind of believe it, that there's U.S. pilots with Saudi pilots in those planes. So, again, that's a legend. Don't think that, that is just here, He I heard. Um, but that's where it is.
0: Yeah, let's it's good development let's, uh, so far. let's let's maybe stop that. <laughs> you know, it's high time. If 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 it's true that we're pulling out of these Middle East conflicts and we're winding it down, the only thing I would accept out of this Biden visit to Saudi Arabia as a positive thing is if he says, "All right, we're gonna you guys got to normalize relations with Israel because we're pulling out, and that means we're not we're not gonna manage." your war against Yemen and we know that you're not you don't even want to be fighting in Yemen anyway you know it's not good for you so we're just gonna stop so maybe they declare an end to the war or shit I'd be super happy if this is a surprise like you know peace agreement between Yemen and and Saudi Arabia or um you know the tribes of Yemen whatever you want to call Yemen at this point you know that would be acceptable for me.
1: I mean, we're talking about the le- the new leaders of Yemen are a, a council of like nine village elders. Right. From different tribes and parts of the country. Come on. We don't... That's just, that's just beyond our ability to understand and manage and get and build off. Like, we just can't take that and be like, okay, this is something that we can go in and understand that's that's just impossible like this this is something that needs to be sorted out in that region and the US should not be picking any sides Dang. and Saudi Arabia shouldn't be picking any sides either I mean I understand if Saudi has national security interest and, and things like that and they want to if they're being attacked but the reason why they're and they are attacked by the Houthis but the reason right. why they're attacked by the Houthis is because of their indiscriminate bombing.
2: Right, they started it's their own their own, their
1: own <laughs> blowback that. Right. It's not because Iran is like running this super secret proxy war. Um, Iran is just using it as a as a means to hit because everyone knows Iran does have an extensive proxy network. They do have a, like that's like one of their strengths. Is that being able to get on the ground and develop relationships and camaraderie with like Hezbollah and stuff like that, and and really make strong proxies? And and um, um, every once in a while, the Houthis will 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 say stuff that's really dumb, which will like make the entire. Oh, I should also add, Biden took the Houthis off the terrorism list, so that's a sign. Was that recently? that yeah, was, um, I think, was like not recently. It happened a while ago. I forget which month it happened, but he did take them off, which is just further signs where it's that's like that's big news. Enough of this.
0: You should have just led with that. <laughs> no, I mean, Enough. look at this. It, it, like, if you're having trouble like following this Saudi uh, Arabia Yemen war, or you're having trouble relating to it because. You know, it's not Ukraine right now. Just think of it this way. There's a lot of blowback that's involved. There's a big
1: country and a small country. There's a big country and a small country. Saudi Arabia is a big country. And Yemen is a small country. Well, the big country invaded the small country. That's right. In the words of our vice president when explaining the the
0: (laughs) war in In russia but i mean there's a lot of parallels i mean especially with the with the involvement of iran right so er iran you know uh, helping the houthis is is kind of like you know helping out ukraine just to bleed you know russia dry like of course iran's gonna want to throw them a, a bone here and there because if they keep up the war then it weakens saudi arabia and they don't like saudi arabia just plain and simple
1: we're not throwing Ukraine a bone. We're throwing them the full cow. Right. Well, we're throwing, yeah, we're throwing them are the box of... Iran doesn't have the o- o- ability to do what we're, we can do. We're throwing them a box of Oreo cookies that will eventually kill them at the end. Um, It may taste good, but it will eventually kill you.
0: It's just, you know, like, obviously, war in Ukraine is terrible. And war in Yemen is also fucking terrible. And, you know, it's just... All of it needs to stop. (laughs) Literally all of it. So I'll be, I'll be happily elated to um, why I suppose I can't vote for Joe Biden anymore. Can't I? I'm in Puerto Rico. Oh, well, if I could vote (laughs) and he stops the war in Yemen, that would be one of the reasons why I would vote for him. All right.
1: Well, Stay in Puerto Rico with your liberal politics. All right. <laughs> um, all right, let's end this thing. Peace. All right, peace, Peace, everyone. Thanks for, for joining us on another episode of Bro History. We very much appreciate your time that you give us. Please rate and review the podcast. We're trying to get our ratings up. We're trying to get the reviews up. We are planning on doing an episode... Where we read the reviews, so we got plenty of nasty ones. So how about some nice ones for a change, right? Um, the nasty
0: ones will be funny to to talk about. The nasty
1: too, the nasty ones are fun as well, but you know, a little little. Diversity. Just be more specific. We can you know? hear if you like the show, <laughs> you can review the show and let us know. We we like positive feedback as well. Um, all right, so rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to support our show. It, it helps our algorithm and us to be searched. So it's important that you guys do that. And um, we will see you next week with some more groundbreaking content. Oh, oh, yeah, we also have a Patreon. You can join that as well, get access to our Slack. But we will be back next week. We are working on a history episode on the spanish-american war that we've been working on for a while and um i'm not sure when we're going to record that one if it's going to be next week or the following week but um should be exciting okay peace peace